It's Monday, August 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value and All Things Australia, Joe Maker, back in the house. Good night, mate. Welcome. Thank you. So good Thank to you. see you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. Let's put you to work. Um, we're going to talk <laughs> about Michael Kors' latest quarter. We're going to talk about P&G. We will touch on the member event in San Francisco that Jason and I were at. But let's start with Berkshire Hathaway. Second quarter profit rose 41%. Overall revenue for the quarter coming in just shy of $50 billion. Obviously, Berkshire Hathaway's got somewhere north of 80 different subsidiary businesses. And I'm going to talk about each one in turn. <laughs> I'm going to go for coffee right now. You'll still be talking when I get back. Now, what, I mean, what, what stood out to you in the quarter? Well, it was a big one in terms of profit. Book value per share, though, is only up, and I say only 5.6% through the first half of this year. That's solid. For a company this big, that's solid. Uh, railroad not having the best quarter, that's fine. Uh, it's still in a great great position, a huge beneficiary of, of oil production in the U.S. You know, on the whole, it's doing extremely well. Geico is just crushing it, absolutely crushing it. They've made a really smart move. They're pouring tons of cash into marketing. It's working out incredibly, incredibly well. They're gaining lots of market share, and then on the whole, things are going, you know, extremely well. The the equity portfolio, not doing great. Uh, Coke, Wells Fargo, IBM. I mean, I own a couple of those. The the ones that are good, so <laughs> not IBM. Uh, but well, let's. I mean, stay tuned for our bonus features where Joe reveals which ones are good. I was going to say, let's not pre- let's not pretend because I'm also a shareholder. Let's not pretend that Coca Cola is lighting the world on fire. You know, if you had told me a year ago. That when I recommended Coke to Inside Value members, it would be up 17% in one year, but underperforming the market, I would have laughed you off. Completely laughed you off. That I find that very hard to believe. Let's go back to Geico for a second. I have a hard time wrapping my head around Geico, mainly because living here in the D.C. area, Geico is everywhere. And so, yeah. it's great to hear that the marketing is paying off because, you, honestly, you can't go probably 24 hours in the D.C. area without <laughs> running into some sort of Geico advertisement of some sort. Mm-hmm. Is that is is that the rest of the U.S. as well, or are they, or are they just being very strategic about which markets they're, they're doing that in? They're very aggressive. I mean, they're making it a consumer brand that they can charge more around, and because they have this great low-cost structure that they can leverage, it's incredibly profitable. So they can afford to spend more on marketing and still make more money than the rivals. So it's a good gig. Yeah, it's, I mean, as a shareholder, I'm very thrilled to see this. I mean, I'm just it, to me that's really impressive to see them growing the top line like that, really at double digits with a company this size. And, and, and to Joe's point about book value, it, it's not lighting the world on fire, but hey, you know, five, five and a half, six percent—that's not too shabby either. Um, I got a, a good question on Twitter the other day. Someone was asking why do people buy Berkshire Hathaway at a premium when they could just mimic the holdings? And I mean, that's a, that's a fair question, but by the same token, I think there are a couple of dynamics that that would that would make an investor want to say, well, I, I would rather hold shares of Berkshire. Number one, management. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons there. Uh, you know. Beyond even Buffett and Munger, I mean, uh, I think this is a company that's really setting it, setting itself up for uh, long-term success. But you also really can't quite mimic Berkshire Hathaway by just you know matching those equity holdings like Joe's talking about, because there's so many privately held, wholly owned uh, businesses that aren't publicly traded. Geico being one of them, uh, and so that's really the the only way you can get the exposure to those businesses. And I think that's what makes this such a compelling investment to just you know you, you add it when the opportunity presents itself. It just I, I wouldn't plan on ever letting it go, really, probably ever. <laughs> Did anything come out of um, the results in terms of 
whether it's something Berkshire Hathaway said or just rampant speculation on the part of analysts regarding another purchase, another elephant gun. Well, so I was going to say something that was said without any words was that the cash is piling up. So they got lots and lots of cash, and they're not finding great places to put it. Oh, oh Heinz. Heinz is doing incredibly well. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Those, those <laughs> Brazilian guys at 3G Capital have done an amazing job of turning around Heinz. They boosted profitability 50% year over year by ringing out tons of costs. That's that's going to be a huge win for Berkshire. They cut the size of those ketchup packets just a little bit. <laughs> um, I think we talked about this at the time. The the way that purchase went down, bringing in a partner like that, there was some talk that, hey, if this works out, this could be a model yeah. for the future. I mean, it sounds like based on how the well, Heinz while we're nerding out on the subject, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. there there has been speculation among super value nerds that Coke could be a target at some point. Uh, the the guys running 3G are extremely aggressive, extremely aspirational, and they've taken down large American beverage brands before. So Budweiser, uh, when they got acquired Anheuser Busch, that was these Brazilian guys through a vehicle they controlled, which took over another larger beer company. So they have. An incredible track record of ringing out a lot of value from companies that seemingly are well-run, Heinz being a good example. Second quarter profit for Michael Kors was better than expected. Sales were up in Europe and Japan. So, Jason, I am compelled to ask, why is the stock down 7% right now? Well, Chris, you know the market is a forward-looking mechanism. It's <laughs> always based on expectations, right? Uh, no, you're right. I mean, this was a good quarter. I mean, you look at it virtually, you know, every metric, it seemed like it was a really good quarter. I mean, I, I'll warn warn investors who think that, you know, we, we always talk about Michael Kors and Coach sort of in the same sentence, and you're seeing one gaining share at the cost of another's. Uh, it's now overtaken Coach in terms of market share, hasn't it's, it? Absolutely. It's bigger than Coach at this point. Uh, I, I will say to think that this is a Coach loses, therefore Coach uh, Kors wins proposition is is mistaken. I mean, I think that what we're seeing in, in the quarter here is that while Coors did very well, did, did pretty well, um, you know, holding its margins on the, the wholesale side, they are they're seeing a, a lot of, of price slashing on the retail side. And they have a, a big retail presence, a bigger retail presence than Coach. So when you go to those department stores and they're carrying those Michael Coors brands, I mean, those department stores are having they're having to, to resort to more price cuts, more deal cutting to move product. And, and that's something that offset really the boost in margins that the wholesale business provided. Uh, now, it's not to say that all is all is lost. I mean, Michael Kors is still selling a lot of product. I mean, the top line showed us that. But I think that, you know, you have to look at this and say, well, this is this company selling for 24, 25 times earnings versus Coach, which is selling out like 10. I mean, for good reasons, Right. But the, retail is just a super fickle game. And when you start talking about luxury retail, well, these guys are, are maintaining their own sort of outlet stores that are right next to coach stores. And, and it's not like, uh, you know, luxury is really, uh, you know, playing that wholesale sort of outlet store game. So, it, you know, what happened to coach can certainly happen to cores. I mean, what's in one day can be out the next. You want to buy these retailers when the pessimism is high, but you feel like there's a management team in there that can turn the boat, you know, in, in the right direction. I mean, I, I think Coors is doing very well, but but I think a lot of the of the good news has been baked into the stock price of the sell-off today. Uh, you know, it, it seems to be warranted in my in my eyes. Well, I know, and we've talked about this. Apple in 
what, September, October is going to be unveiling their new products, but maybe second in the consumer space. Maybe it's a distant second, but I think investors who are looking at uh, product launches in the fall are probably thinking about Coach yeah. and sort of that that whole line of designer bags. I mean, is this is this the time to maybe take a little nibble of Coach if you think that's going to pay off? If, if, if the reviews that have come out so far granted not with consumers just from sort of the you know the people who review fashion and that sort of thing if you think that's going to play out well for coach in the fall I think that's the catalyst, right? I mean, that's what we're all waiting for. That's going to be the short-term sort of catalyst that moves this one way or another. I mean, Stuart Vivers is is new to the to the company, and Victor Luis obviously taking over the CEO reins from uh, Lou Frankfurt not too terribly long ago. They have made this shift from being sort of that affordable luxury brand to really just being an all-out retail brand, and and so yeah, this 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 release in September is going to be the catalyst that takes it one way or another. I mean, I, I don't look at any of these retailers as companies that you want to really hold for five and ten year periods. I mean, I think their price really matters. I think you sell them when they, when they start to look uh, you know pretty optimistic, and then you buy them when. When the uh, when it looks like the world's going to end, it does kind of look like the world's going to end for Coach right now. If you're interested, I mean, I, I, this is the time that you want to buy, and, and you really have to kind of do your own research to see if you're a believer. Do you think that Stuart Vivers is going to be received well here in September? If you believe that's the case, uh, I think there's there certainly is an argument to be made for some upside there. But I, I, I also would not be backing up the truck on this on this stock. It's it's a risky, a spicy meatball. Do you want any part of either of these stocks? No, too? man. <laughs> no, I don't do retail. It's terrible economics. I don't do fashion because I have bad taste. <laughs> Let's move on to Procter & Gamble. Uh, fourth quarter results on Friday were completely overshadowed by the fact that the company announced that it is going to be cutting, over the next few years, up to 100 brands from its portfolio. And its portfolio is about 180 brands. And on the one hand, I think this makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. uh, because roughly 95% of P&G's profits apparently comes from just their top 70 or 80 brands, so that makes sense. I'm still a little struck by the fact that the arms race in the consumer goods household product space has gone on for as long as it has because it really does seem like for a very long time P&G, Colgate-Palmolive, even Johnson and Johnson were like, "Yes, bigger is better, and we're going to make all these little tuck-in acquisitions." And then, mm-hmm. lo and behold, it's 2014, and apparently P and G looked at each one by profitability and was like, "Oh my gosh, we got to cut some of these." Yeah. Well, the irony is that the semi-new CEO AG Lapley is the one who was the architect of this strategy and made all these acquisitions back in the day. He's the one who bought Gillette, paid a lot for it. So it is somewhat ironic. I do think it's a smart move. So this is a classic 9010 where they have a ton of mindshare within the company, probably lots of really smart, talented managers working on brands that no one really cares about. Like, And I've, I've followed P&G for years. I own the shares. But when I look at the list of brands, there must be 50 that I have no idea what they are, right. what they do, what countries they serve. So I think it's a smart deal. <laughs> and there are plenty of willing buyers out there. Just to put a little color on this, the brands that are working for them are brands that – you know, if you're listening to this like in, the, tie, in the United Pampers, States, you July. probably have Huge. some of these in your home. Crest, Durac- Duracell batteries, Crest toothpaste, 
Charmin toilet paper, all, you know, all of these sort of well-known brands. But yeah, I, I had the same reaction. I was looking at some, you know, there was one article that was listing some of the ones that are, because P&G isn't saying right now, and maybe when the next quarterly call comes around, maybe we'll get sort of the first round of cuts, or presumably as sales happen, mm-hmm. those those will get announced. But yeah, I was the same as you. I looked at some of these brands. I said, wait a minute, if can you tell me what this product is? Because just the brand name alone is not registering with me at all. Well, a lot of them are profitable. It's just that they're so small that it's not really worth the company's time for them to stay on board. So this is a stock that you've recommended in Inside Value. Yeah. You've got to be thrilled by this news. Well. Not just the, not just <laughs> the fact that the stock was up about 4% on Friday. Because yeah, I, I think it's a great strategic move, and I hope they act on it sooner rather than later, and that they get fair prices. And I think all those things will roll out. I am disappointed with how the shares have performed relative to the market. They've been flapped pretty badly. Uh, I expected consumers would come back to P&G's brands, which tend to be positioned as, as kind of first tier. They just haven't come back, even though the economy's come around. So it's been disappointing thus far. Well, it seems like, con- not it seems like, it is a fact. Consumers have more choices than ever before. And unless you're really fired up about whatever detergent you're pulling off the shelf, then you're going to go with whatever is the most cost-effective. I mean, maybe you're completely loyal about Tide detergent, but if I'm in a grocery store, I'm just looking at what's a brand that I recognize and that is also on sale at the moment. Well, some of the brands have the ability to add more value elsewhere, and because of that, you're willing to pay more of a premium. So I would say Tide, because of the... you know, you're dealing with your clothes, like tons and tons of clothes on an ongoing basis, and you want to take care of them because they're expensive to replace. So you can make a little more of a case, like, I'm going to pay a little more for Tide. But if you look at, you know, paper towels, that's one where you're like, okay, so I've got the Tide, not the Tide, but I got the P&G paper towels, most expensive. And then I got a pack just beneath that. It's 50 cents less. Honestly, they look just like the same paper to me. I'm pretty sure these cheaper ones are wearing just fine. And I think that's the class of brands where they've really, really struggled. Yeah, and I mean, what I'll be interested to see is over time, you know, the the advent of e-commerce. You know, Amazon is jumping in with big, you know, names like Procter & Gamble and moving in on their warehouses to sort of share space and assist in distribution. Uh, so the Vendor Flex essentially gives Amazon one more way to, to get that product out to their customers, uh, in, in particularly utilizing that bigger footprint, you know, reducing shipping times, reducing costs. So possibly providing those those powerful brands at a little bit of a better price. And, and we know how powerful that Prime model is, you know, kind of once you get reeled in there. I, I know I'm ordering more and more from Amazon all the time. And things like toilet paper, paper towels, detergent those are things that you can subscribe to and get regularly, so you don't have you take the thinking out of doing it. Uh, you know, I, I think there is another sort of a long term uh, way for them to participate and possibly you know get get more of that product out to consumers. Before we wrap up, I got to say a couple of thank yous. First, thank you to our colleague Brian Richards and uh, Matt Kopenheffer and Matty Argusinger. Uh, they've been off in Germany, and. Uh, Brian brought back a little product, some marzipan and some Pringles from Germany. And the flavor is classic paprika. Classic Not that that newfangled paprika. It's the classic paprika. So thank you to Brian for that. Um, And Fool Germany, our our site is up and running, so check it out. It's just fool.de. It's in German. It is in German. should put that out there. Right. Let's, Let's be very clear. 
It is. It is completely in German. So, And I will say, I'd like to give a quick shout-out. I don't even know if you're listening, but Christoph Gross is a friend of ours in Germany. Uh, we, we spent some time with him uh, last year on vacation in the Outer Banks, and he was, he was the guy that really, Maddie and, and Brian and I met with him one day, had a video conference. So Christoph was really kind of our boots on the ground to give us a good feel of what was going on in Germany, the sentiment there for investors. Uh, j- just an exceptional guy, really thoughtful to take his time to do that. So thank you, Christoph. I hope this is... Uh, very well received in Germany. I think it will be. Thank you also to all of you who wrote to us about our trip to San Francisco with recommendations on El Pollo Loco and In-N-Out Burger. We did not make it to either franchise. We were busy. We were. (laughs) I know. I know. It's terrible. I thought about that, though. We got there Thursday afternoon and literally from Thursday afternoon until Saturday morning, I don't. We didn't really have time to leave the hotel. We were, yeah, we were going busy. pretty much twenty four seven. We did, however, make it out to a couple of locations. I would like to highly recommend uh, Trapasueño, which is a Mexican restaurant right in downtown San Francisco. And and for breakfast, Maddie and I went one morning to Dottie's True Blue Cafe, which I cannot recommend highly enough. You definitely want to check it out on Yelp or just uh, Google reviews or something first because it is absolutely one of those places that is phenomenal, but you would never go there unless someone recommended you go there because it is off of one of the main streets in downtown San Francisco, and it is down halfway down a block. And on either side of the block, you've got some pretty seedy-looking hotels. Maddie had actually tweeted out a photo, and it's just its just not a particularly great neighborhood. It's not unsafe, but it's just it's no place that you would look at and just say, hey, I'm going to take a stroll down that block. <laughs> but the food was unbelievable. Uh, from the member event, it was basically a day and a half. Thanks to all the members who showed up, um, it, was, it was a phenomenal crowd. And uh, there was so much going on, but I'm curious if you had any takeaways, Jason. Yeah, you know, I mean, like you said, it was it was a really busy event, a lot of fun. There was a lot of stuff going on. And uh, I think really for me, the morning on Friday, you know, Bro and I got started with Brian Withers, one of our, our TMF members on the board, who, uh, you know, we, we had the Foolish uh, Family Finance session, which, you know, it, that was impressive. I mean, that, that, that went to a packed room. I mean, there had to be 100 people in that room, and we got to really – uh, you know, talk a lot about sort of the different ways we approach finance with our families, kids. Uh, you know, there is no one right answer. There are a lot of great answers out there, and I think we had a nice, uh, you know, a nice assortment of sort of uh, personal experience and some good ideas there. And it was just really nice to see, uh, you know, parents and grandparents there taking an interest uh, like they did. So, you know, I, I can't thank I can't thank the members enough for for what was just a great turnout. Tom Gardner's interview with Berut Abdi, who is the CEO of Invencent, I came away so impressed by him, not just because he's a smart guy and, and it's a business that I don't completely understand, so I obviously need to do some more work on that, but just sort of the gravitas he brings, his humility, he seemed very clear-eyed about the challenges. He was not a whistling past the graveyard type <laughs> type of CEO <laughs> where like everything's awesome. He was he was very upfront about the challenges, the very real challenges his company faces. Yeah. But that's absolutely a stock I'm putting on my watch list because he he was just an incredibly impressive guy. Yeah, I, I own shares of, of Invincence, and I tell you, I walked away from that interview feeling pretty good about that. I mean, I, yeah. I, uh, he had some good answers to some really relevant questions in that space, particularly in regard to commoditization, which you see. In that type of, of uh, space, uh, you know, their platform strategy I think is impressive. I think playing into that that bigger trend 
of, of wearables. And really, you know, the quote that he said, the quote that he said that really struck me was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think I got this about right. He said, the Internet of Things is really about the Internet of Sensors. And, and that's what InvenSense does. They, they are making those sensors. And so, uh, you know, when you're looking at an Internet of Things play out there, I, I think that uh, it, it's easy to let a company like InvenSense just go completely under your radar. But, but I, would, I would give it a look. All right, Jason, Joe Maker, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.